thank you, Ted, for shepherding us in prayer. And Eric, it's been a helpful word in song for us. Well, welcome this morning to Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose. It's good to see you. We're back from retreat. And that moment of sweetness is gone. And we're back into... uh, the normal life and the normal world, so to speak. And certainly, this past year has been a difficult and challenging year for many. And it continues to be so. And um, just want to be mindful as we think um, of how blessed we are that there are still many in our nation and our country and around the world who are just struggling with hard things, especially believers, as we heard about last week from from Pastor Rodney. That we're blessed and God has given us more than we deserve. We are unworthy sinners and yet the Lord has loved us and He has made us just rich in so many different ways. You know, and we can forget that very, very quickly. I certainly can, I'll tell you that. As soon as things are hard, food is spilled, chips are on the floor, toys are stepped on, things don't go the way we'd hoped or expected. And certainly as we look in the news, we're continually reminded that things are challenging. And if we're honest with ourselves, quite frankly, as we look around in our world, there continues to be very little to encourage us especially in our nation and in our world. I'm thankful that every time the men come and pray, they pray for our nation and they pray for our world. And we need to because there's very, very little as we look around that's encouraging. Most of what we read or hear through our podcasts and our social media and our news continues to be troubling. Whether it be the impact of social media on the mental health of our youth, whether it be threatening gestures like we're seeing from the President of China towards Taiwan just days after he sends an unprecedented number of bombers close by, whether it be the rise and fall of Christian ministries that we hear all about in our podcasts. There's very little as we look around that the world has to offer to encourage us. And many times the church, we feel the same way as well. And yet, brothers and sisters, praise God. As Christians, we have something and someone other than the media and the world and the world of Christian celebrities to look at, to listen to, to be shepherded by and to allow our hearts to be filled with. And brothers and sisters, I just want to remind us a little bit, that's what retreat was all about. We had a, a wonderful time at retreat. And sometimes it can be discouraging coming from retreat back into the real world. But brothers and sisters, this is why we gather. And this is what Eric led us in in song, and Jonathan as well. This idea of really what do we worship and what do we gather? What are we looking at and what are we looking for? Could I have my first slide, please? Brothers and sisters, the reason we're able to rejoice is we don't have to look at these things and fill our lives with these things. In fact, I frequently warn brothers and sisters, you do need to know the news, you do need to know what's going on in the world, 
we do need to be able to pray, but you have to be mindful. We don't want to shut ourselves into a box, but you have to be mindful a little bit about what you're looking at and what you're looking for. Because we as Christians, the reason we gather is we have a light that fills our hearts with a life and a love and a joy that is from above and not from below. And it's a good news, brothers and sisters. This is what sets apart the people of God. This is what is to set apart our gathering. It's not the size of our screens or how loud the sound is or how wonderful our surroundings are. It's the good news, brothers and sisters, of Jesus Christ. And it begs the question, and I bring it up this morning, what are we looking for? And that goes back to what are we looking at every day, every minute, every moment of our lives. And as we come to our text this morning, Matthew 2, 1 through 12, these, in fact, I believe, are questions that confront us and that Matthew and God through Matthew is confronting us with. What are we looking at and what are we looking for? And Matthew raises these questions first by showing us who Jesus is. And showing us who Jesus is, as we've been learning, according to God's Word, not according to our expectations or our hopes or desires. And for Matthew, without a shadow of a doubt, he shows us that according to God's Word, Jesus is the light of the world, who has come to lead His people out of the darkness and into the light. Now I'm going to say that to you over and over again every Sunday because we forget both sides of it. What Matthew's doing in this gospel, first he's showing us who Jesus is according to his word, but then he's showing who we are. He's showing who and what we are. He's showing what we look for and what we look at. And he's showing this early church who are struggling, these first century Jewish believers who are being persecuted for following Jesus and believing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the light of the world. He's showing them, look, I want you to know you're not just another person or another follower following another rabbi. You are the people who Christ has brought out of darkness and he's brought into the light. But it's not a light of this world. Whistles and bells, big cars, big mansions, big education, big career. It's a light that saves you from your sin and transforms you and makes you into something completely different and new. A child of God. And brothers and sisters, this is something that we forget very easily from Monday to Friday, myself included. So Matthew's writing to them to show them you need to understand exactly who you are and why you have every reason to rejoice but also why you need to be mindful about what you look at and what you're looking for. So that's where Matthew begins. But then through his account of the journey of the Magi, which is what Matthew 2, 1 through 12 covers, Matthew begins to show us two very different responses to the good news of the gospel and to the light of who Jesus is. And he points out to us not everyone is looking for the light. Including many of those who say they're looking for Jesus. Including many of those who know God's word. And including many of those who stand in the pulpit and 
walk in the halls of religious institutions. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 12. The God-breathed account of the journey of the Magi. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, By the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men, or the magi, secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in John's gospel, John ten twenty seven, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And here in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew shows us two kings and he shows us two kingdoms and he shows us two groups of people who are looking for Jesus. They are all looking for Jesus. And they all hear from God's word where Jesus is to be found. But in the end, these two groups of people end up in two very different places. And they end up in two very, very, very different kingdoms. And with this account, Matthew shows us, and very much in the spirit of what we read in Jesus' words in John 10, Matthew shows us that the ultimate test of who we are, and the ultimate test of what we're really looking for, not what we say we're looking for, what we're really looking for, The ultimate test is how we respond and what we do with the words God gives us. I'm going to say that again. The ultimate test of who you are and what you're really looking for is how you respond and what you do with the words God gives you. And in verse 3, the response of Herod and all of Jerusalem to the word of God that is given to them by the Magi about Jesus, 
It shows that the last thing they're really looking for is the gospel or the good news of what God is doing in King Herod's kingdom. The last thing they're really looking for is what God is doing to save sinners through the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, and it's making reference to verse 2, it's making reference to the presence of the Magi, the words that they bring, the questions that they ask, all of which, and, and the mention of the star, all of which is a testimony that God is at work doing something supernatural in King Herod's kingdom. That the kingdom of heaven has come close and something major is happening. And verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was what? He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Could I uh, have my next slide, please? Thank you. And this is our first point this morning. The gospel troubles our kings and our kingdoms. The gospel troubles our kings and our kingdoms. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is not good news to everyone. And in verse 3, the word Matthew uses to describe King Herod's response to the good news of Jesus Christ's birth is the word troubled. Troubled. In Greek, this word is terasso. And it's a word that frequently describes our response when Jesus shows up in a place that we don't expect or want. In our kitchen, in our study, late at night. I recall Pastor Rodney sharing how his son would come at 11 o'clock in China to share his woes and his concerns. You recall how he said, you know, 11 o'clock at night is not necessarily the time I'm thinking about having lengthy spiritual talks with my son. Right? Tarasso is that word that frequently describes our response when Jesus upsets our apple cart. In Matthew 14, 26, that word tarasso is translated terrified. And it describes the disciples' response when they see Jesus walking on the water. They are terrified. And Tarasso describes a state of incredible disturbance and distress. It's the idea of a storm or a hurricane. And it's the idea of being shaken to the core emotionally and spiritually. Our contemporary word for this is freaked out. Reminds me when I was reading... Lucy's wedding application and her description of her first date with Willie. I was freaked out. And it's an appropriate word, right? Because the hand of the Lord is doing a work which who knows whether Lucy at that moment was ready for or not. But in John 12, 27, it's a word that Jesus himself uses to describe his soul in anticipation of the cross. Now is my soul troubled. And Jesus is using this word to describe his anticipation of the holiness of God coming down to confront the sin of men on the cross and in him. And we see that this word troubled is used throughout Scripture and in Matthew in the Gospels to describe those moments where the holiness of God draws near to men, sinful men. 
And we see that what troubles our hearts, brothers and sisters, frequently, what disturbs or distresses our souls, what shakes us up, is typically something that is bigger than we are. Something that we cannot control. And something that threatens to destroy what we're looking for what we treasure and what's most important to us. And for King Herod, one of the most brutal rulers in history and arguably the most powerful king of Judea since King Solomon, what troubles and terrifies him and all his people in Jerusalem, that all of Jerusalem with him, that's making a reference to all the leaders of the Jewish people who King Herod Appointed, He went in and killed many of them and then appointed his own men to run the temple and to run the religious institutions. So Jerusalem, not unlike Washington, was a place that was filled with people who lived and worked for King Herod and for the ruling people. What troubled them and what terrified them is the gospel. It's the good news of verse 2 of God supernaturally bringing the one who has been born king of the Jews directly into, quote unquote, Herod's turf or his kingdom. It's the good news of God's holiness drawing near to Herod's throne. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and terrified and all of Jerusalem with him. And in response, King Herod does what many troubled and terrified people do. He begins looking for answers, and he begins looking for information in an attempt to control his fear. And so we see in verse 4, what does King Herod do? Well, he does not have a Google search engine. So instead, he begins to assemble all. It says verse 4, assembling all, not some, all of the most powerful and influential leaders in his kingdom. The chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. The implication here is that King Herod knows something about the scriptures. King Herod knows something about the Messiah because his inquiry is, where is not this king or this person? Where is the Christ? So King Herod is aware of the expectation of the coming of God's king to deliver his people. And he knows enough of the scriptures. To understand that what's going on with the Magi showing up and the talk of a star, that something big is happening. And the chief priest refers to the leaders who controlled the temple. And because they controlled the temple in Jerusalem, they controlled the worship and the wealth of Herod's kingdom. Because all the money came into the temple. And every year at the different festivals, Jews from around the diaspora would all come and be accounted for and come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the epicenter of political and religious power. And the chief priests who controlled it, therefore controlled much of Herod's kingdom. The reason Jesus, in the passage we read earlier this morning, goes in before his crucifixion to the temple and goes to the court of the Gentiles and starts overturning the temples of the money changers and says, my father's house is a house of prayer. It's not to be a den of thieves. The reason he comes in and he he does that is there's a whole economy being run there that is under the control where all the money is being fueled to the chief priests and to Rome, and to everyone they work for. 
And the scribes of the people refers to the leaders who interpret or apply the scriptures or the law that ruled the life of every Jewish person, both in Judea but also around the world. And together they formed what was known as the Sanhedrin. And that Sanhedrin was like the equivalent of the Supreme Court, the Senate, and the Congress all ruled into one body. And what everybody had known, even though God had specifically specified in His Word who the chief priest was to be and what families they came from, and what qualified them is that Herod previously had killed most of them and replaced them with people who he liked. This was the Sanhedrin, and New Testament scholar Leon Morris points out, for King Herod to assemble his entire ruling body in Jerusalem, composed of all, not some, all the religious and legal leaders of his kingdom, it shows how big of a deal this was for King Herod. a little bit like what we're going through in Washington right now with their attempt to raise the debt ceiling and all the hoopla where everybody has to stick around while they try and get this legislation done. Well, why did this trouble King Herod and all of Jerusalem so much? Why was it such a big deal for King Herod? Well, what was well known to everyone is that King Herod had no problem brutally getting rid of anyone who was a threat to his throne. Typically, King Herod didn't call everybody together to do those sorts of things. He just had them killed. And this included three of his sons and one of his wives. There was nobody who was immune to Herod's brutal attempts to secure his throne. But as we think about it, one other person who's a threat to his throne is no big deal. But what is well documented by both Jewish and Roman historians is one of the titles King Herod used was King of the Jews. It was a title that had been given to him by the Senate in Rome. And what is also well known and documented both by Jewish and Roman historians is that King Herod had destroyed the official genealogy of the record of the kings that was kept in in the temple. Some of what we read through when we went through Matthew 1. Herod had placed orders to have those destroyed, removed from the temple, the official documents of the genealogy of the kings. Why did Herod do that? Because Herod was born neither a Jew or a king. Herod was an Edomite. And when you go through the Old Testament, the Edomites descend from Esau. And they lived in an area that is what is now Jordan. Where, if you've ever seen the pictures of Petra, okay, those are the Edomites. And as you go through the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets, including Micah, where we're going to see a quote that's going to come. The promises of God about the Edomites is that God will curse the Edomites And God will bring them to justice and judgment for how they treated God and how they treated God's people. King Herod came from an Edomite family who had converted to Judaism for political advantage in the era of the Greeks and the Romans. 
And King Herod had acquired his kingdom, not by birth or not by according to God's word, but by shrewd politics and ruthless manipulation. And he had earned favor with Rome and he had gained control of the temple. And by the world standards, Herod was indeed a great and powerful king. He's the prototype of the self-made man. But according to God's word, he was an imposter, he was a fraud, he was an unworthy king, and he was a lie. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing more troubling or threatening to a fraud and a lie than the truth. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus always does all the way through the Gospels, all the way to the cross, and all the way, brothers and sisters, into your life and mine. He is the light, and He is the truth. And when He comes into our lives, He exposes our lies, and our counterfeits, and our false kingdoms, and all the things that we construct ourselves, for ourselves, to reassure us that we're good, we're legitimate, We're religious people. We're wonderful. We've got a great life. Everything is going fine. And when Jesus comes in, just like he did with Pilate, he begins to show that our kings and our kingdoms, at the end of the day, just like the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity. That all of these things that we fight for and contend for, our careers, our education, our ministries, our pulpits, all of these things, they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. And they point out, as Jesus always does, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As much as I like to pat myself on the shoulder for getting my wife a gift, or being kind to my children, in God's eyes, when I come to God's word, I discover in the presence of Christ, who is the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate husband, the ultimate king, I am unworthy. I fail my family more than I care to admit. And the only king and the only kingdom that offers any hope and any value and any worth of any lasting value is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the kingdom of His Word. And brothers and sisters, that is the truth of the gospel. And that is, brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus comes in and He upsets our apple cart, and He begins to show us these things, our relationships, our marriages, our families, all of these different things that we put up there, like it's something special. In love and mercy and grace, he's showing us that we have placed our hopes in things that cannot stand. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. The gospel exposes the folly of our kings and our kingdoms. The gospel exposes the folly of our kings and our kingdoms. And this is what Matthew begins to show us in verse 5 through 8. In response to Herod's inquiry as to where the Christ was to be born, without hesitation, the chief priests and the scribes tell him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. And then they back up their answer with scripture 
For so it is written by, or so it is written through the prophet. And when they say, so it is written through the prophet, they're coming out and telling Herod, look, we got this on a good place and from a good source, through the prophet. They're basically appealing, this is the word of God. The verbal inspiration that God has spoken through the prophet. And they're making reference to Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now as we hear their answer to King Herod, which they give without hesitation. There's no dispute. There's no argument. There's no, well, we weren't sure. Here are the top three options. Maybe here. There's a few key giveaways in this answer that shows us a little bit about what's going on and what first century Jews would have appreciated because they understood the context and were a little closer historically than we are. First giveaway. Everyone knows what this is all about. This is not taking anybody by surprise. The Magi, the star, the one who was born king of the Jews, they all know this is about God's fulfillment of his promise of a Messiah, an anointed king, who has come, according to his word, to deliver or save his people and bring God's kingdom to earth. And this is why they appeal to that phrase through the prophet. They're going to God's word. Here's the second giveaway. They all know where to find the Messiah. This is no secret. They all know where to find the Messiah in God's word. And they all know where to find the Messiah in Judea. It is no secret. But the biggest giveaway of all is what King Herod and the chief priests and scribes do in response to all that they've heard, all that they've seen, and all that they know from the word of God. And in verse 7 and 8, we see this. King Herod summons the Magi secretly to ask more questions and to get more info. should always raise an eyebrow, brothers and sisters, where God's word is clear and yet people continue to ask for more questions and more information because what they have is not enough. King Herod summons the Magi secretly to ask them questions. And then he tells the Magi to go and search diligently for the child while he and the chief priests and the scribes remain in Jerusalem. But most damning of all, brothers and sisters, are the words that Herod says in verse 8. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Number one, what you've told me is not enough. To move or do anything different or to leave my throne. What's interesting is that the quote they give is from Micah, Micah 5.2. And when you go to Micah, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And the book of Micah, as you read it, there's a lot of fire and brimstone. Because it is a call to the kings and the people of Judah, that's Herod's kingdom, to repent. And specifically to repent of many of the social injustices in the nation that reflect that they do not love God and they do not trust in his word. And mixed in with many of the calls for judgment 
is the promise that God himself is going to come directly and walk in the land of Judah to bring that judgment. But he will also raise up a shepherd who will rule his people. Clearly King Herod and the chief priests and the scribes They weren't worried about the context, and they weren't worried about the details. They were only looking for one thing from the text, an answer to solve their problem. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Here's the second thing that's damning about this. What's obvious from King Herod's words is that everybody knows who Jesus is according to God's word. Everybody knows where to find Jesus according to God's word. And worse still, everyone knows what God's word requires of them. They all know that whoever this person is, they are supposed to go and worship, bend the knee, proskuneo, vow allegiance, and worship him. They know it. Who he is, where he's at, and what God expects of them. He knows that God expects that they leave everything, including their kingdom, in order to go and worship his son, the king, the Messiah. And yet, they do absolutely nothing except tell other people what to do. Because they are unable and unwilling to let go of their kingdom of lies. And what their response reveals, brothers and sisters, is that they are fools with a capital F. In spite of all that they know of the scriptures, in spite of all the sacrifices that King Herod has made, in spite of the fact that he's expanded and built the temple in Jerusalem, making it one of the 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 minor wonders of the ancient world, in spite of all that he's done, his response shows he does not know who God is. And his response shows that he and the chief priests and the scribes were never looking for the Messiah, and they were never looking to hear what God's word said, a call to repentance and to turn to his son, They were searching God's word to fix their problems and to preserve their kingdom. Brothers and sisters, there is no shortage of Herods and chief priests and scribes in our day, from the pulpit all the way to the biblical counseling room, where God's word is simple and it is clear. And yet it is not sufficient for us because we need one more question One more piece of information, one more word, one more Bible study, one more audio sermon. And in the end, nothing changes. Why? Because we're not really looking for Jesus, or at least the Jesus of Scripture. We're not looking for a ruler who will shepherd his people. We don't want to be shepherded by God or his word. All we're really looking for is a fix for our throne and our kingdom. To keep on ruling the way we've always been ruling. To keep on telling others what to do.
Brothers and sisters, the real test of what we are and what we're really looking for is the simple test of what we do with the words God gives us. It's the simple test of obedience to God's word. And that, over time, brothers and sisters, shows whether it's from the pulpit to our TV screens to the people we work with, it shows who and what we are and what we're really looking for. Can I have my next slide, please? Thank you. Our third point this morning is the obedience of faith separates sheep from wolves. The obedience of faith separates sheep from wolves. In Scripture, Jesus makes this point. God's sheep are always looking for their shepherd. God's sheep are always looking for their shepherd. But wolves are just looking to be fed. God's sheep are always looking for their shepherd. But wolves are just looking to be fed. And this is as true of Sunday morning as it is in the wild. Where wolves and sheep occasionally end up in the same place. But they do so for very different reasons. And it's a worthwhile question, brothers and sisters, because it's easy to look at King Herod. But quite frankly, I've seen the same patterns in my life. And I've seen the same patterns in the counseling room frequently. Where you sit and it's just one more question, one more question, one more question. But I really want to know. But A, B, C, D, and E. Or I need this and I need this. And I need this in order to do it. Are you here to be fed? Or are you here to be shepherded? And it's a question that's worth asking for each of us. Are we looking for a shepherd? Or are we just looking to be fed? In our ministries, our homes, our families, and everywhere we go. Well, as we come to verse 9, Matthew shows who are the sheep and who are the wolves. And what he says of the Magi is that after listening to the king, they went on their way. And clearly what separates the Magi from King Herod and the chief priests and the scribes is what they do and how they respond to the simple word of God they are given, of which they have far less than all of those in Jerusalem. And it's a reflection of who they are and what's in their hearts. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Herod and his counselors possessed what the Magi lacked. The scripture that spoke about Christ. This is what they lacked. But Herod and his counselors lacked what the Magi had. The desire to find Christ. It's a question that's worth asking, brothers and sisters, as we hear about all these different things, about churches that rise and fall, and all the different church movements that come, and all the different blogs that people join, and all the different followings. And at the end of the day, they come and go. And we're devastated when they fall apart. And yet we have to stop and ask ourselves, How many of the people who followed and participated and waved the flag, were they really looking for Jesus? Or were they looking to be a part of something else? Well, it's this desire of faith. The desire of faith that moves the Magi to faithfully obey like children what little word of God they have. And they are willing yet again to leave kings and kingdoms and everything that this world has to offer in order to submit and follow God's word. In order to draw near the king of kings. And it is this childlike faith, brothers and sisters, this childlike obedience that God helps 
And he rewards and he does so beautifully. And he does so first with a supernatural sign, the star in the heavens. And then he does so with joy. And all of it is in keeping with God's word. Verse 9 says, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Overwhelming. The superlatives that Matthew uses of their joy. It cannot be contained. It is gushing out. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, this is the joy of faith. This is the joy of walking in God's word. This is the joy of drawing near to the desire of faith. This is the joy of the Apostle Paul in prison. The meals aren't good. The people smell. The cell is not great. But I am walking in God's word. I don't understand what the outcome is. I don't know how all of this is going to turn out. It will probably turn out with Nero cutting my head off. But I do know this is what God has told me to do. I do know he is good for his promises. I do know his love endures forever. I do know that he understands, if I don't, how to make sense of all of this. I do know I am walking with him. Emmanuel, God with us. And as I walk with him, as Paul points out to Timothy in 2 Timothy, every step he takes is a step... Of faith that brings him closer to his heart's desire. To behold face to face. The one who loves him. And gave his life for him. Brothers and sisters. If you're a child of God. There is no greater joy. Brothers and sisters. This is what makes worship. And a church. And a gathering special. It is not the size of the TV screens. It is not the giftedness of your praise team. It's not even the food that gets served after. It's the presence of the light of the world. And the joy of walking in fellowship with him in obedience to his word. And to these foreign priests of false religions. To them, the Lord gives the greatest joy of all. He brings them into the presence of Christ, the ruler who shepherds his sheep. And to them, he gives the undeserved gift of drawing near and worshiping and offering everything that they have to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Emmanuel, God with us. Brothers and sisters, nothing's changed about the good news. The good news for the Magi is the good news for you and I. It's God's gift of the greatest joy and light and treasure of all. The opportunity of falling on our face and giving to Christ everything that we have. Why? Because unlike Herod and unlike you and I and unlike our families and our educations and careers... He is indeed worthy of all our worship because he is the king of God's word. So verse 11 and 12 reads, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense 
and myrrh. And then verse 12 explains to us, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They split and they separate. And this brings us to our final summary point for the day. Could I have my final slide? Matthew's writing, and he gives us this account so that we would know that Jesus is the King of God's Word. And that, brothers and sisters, He is indeed worthy of whatever suffering and whatever trials and whatever obstacles and whatever challenges and whatever upsets to our apple carts come our way. Because these two are part of God's plan that God uses to draw us and draw sinners into the presence of His Son. And it brings us to those same questions that we started with, brothers and sisters. What are you looking at and what are you looking for? We don't live in an era of kings and kingdoms, but nonetheless, a kingdom is just a sphere of influence or power or authority. It's what we treasure. The trip brothers, they make that point as they talk about parenting, that so much of the challenges and conflicts that come in a home come because there is a conflict in our kingdoms, a kingdom of a husband, a kingdom of a wife. And ultimately, Christ comes into those homes and He comes into our lives and He comes into our kingdoms and He shows that the things that we desire and we're pursuing and we're lusting after and we're pursuing, these things are all fragile things that are going to fall away and they don't matter. And they actually get in the way of the love that He desires to give us and the life that He desires to pour into our lives and the light that He wants to shine. And it upsets us, brothers and sisters, and it troubles us because we have to make a decision. Are we going to let go of our kingdoms or like King Herod and the chief priests and the scribes? Is it one more question, one more word, one more counseling session, one more sermon, one more, one more, one more? And maybe then I'll understand and figure out. And you let me know when you get there. Well, Jesus, to the rich young ruler, says very simply, one thing is needful, that you go and sell all your possessions and come and follow me. Brothers and sisters, are you looking to be fed or are you looking to be shepherded? And what do you do with the word God has given you? You don't have to go to seminary. You have more than enough. And here's the sweetness and the goodness of our God. For those who come to him with the faith of a little child, he provides everything you need. He provides the light. He provides the star. He provides the word. He provides the path. And he does everything that you cannot do for yourself to bring you to his son. So that your heart might be filled with joy So that your home might be filled with light. And so that you might have that privilege. That you do not deserve or merit. That you might draw near to a king. Who loves you. And has given his life for you. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus. May we consider each one of us in our lives. 
The things that we need to let go of. The kingdoms that we esteem, and yet they are kingdoms of lies. Would we consider the things that you have come into our lives to show us these are just counterfeits and pale imitations of your grace and your truth? Lord Jesus, would we take whatever word you've given us, just like the Magi, and by faith, Lord Jesus, would we follow it? Would we walk in its way? And would you allow unworthy sinners like us to know the joy of a king who is worthy of all our worship? In your name we pray. Amen.